There's a lot of xenophobic fear-mongering these days about immigration. But as the saying goes, it's really not so much the immigrants who are coming after the jobs, it's the robots. Robots equipped with increasingly sophisticated artificial intelligence are rapidly becoming increasingly competent in a wide array of fields. The meditation that Danielle shared earlier invited us to imagine these robots of the near future as aliens. But unlike in the movies, these robot aliens, so to speak, have not come to conquer us or extract our resources. They don't want to meet our leader. They definitely don't want to meet our leader. Uh, The aliens, it turns out, have come to work. And they not only want to work, they're good at it. Each of these alien robots are highly intelligent, capable of learning languages, solving problems, even increasingly exhibiting creativity. And once they master a skill, they are content to work tirelessly. They don't need vacation. They don't need health insurance. Uh, They need little repairs or time off, can be replicated at increasingly cheap rates. This thought experiment about robot-like aliens is from Martin Ford's important 2015 book, The Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. If robots do eventually take over most or essentially all of the jobs currently done by humans, then what are we humans going to do? One option is some sort of government-sponsored jobs program in which the jobs robots could do much more cheaply and efficiently are reserved by law for humans only. This possibility was famously skewered in the 1960s by the late Milton Freeman, a Nobel Prize-winning economist who's, you can decide if you think this is a dubious distinction or not, but he's been called the second most popular economist of the 20th century. Uh, If you're curious, number one is John Maynard Keynes. And while consulting with the government of a developing Asian nation, Friedman was taken to this large-scale public works project. And he had seen in other places, you know, bulldozers being used and all of that, but in this place, a large number of workers were wielding only shovels. Very few bulldozers, tractors, other heavy earth-moving equipment. So Friedman asked incredulously, why not give them spoons? instead of shovels. After all, shovels are also a technology to make work less labor-intensive for humans. The only reason not to use a bulldozer must be some belief that humans must do some sort of labor to justify paying them, some sort of Protestant work ethic. You're only valuable if you do work. And if that's the case, why not give them spoons, as Friedman suggests, or use their hands for that matter, or just have them do the hokey pokey and turn themselves around for eight hours, you know, if you're just looking for them to twiddle their thumbs before punching the clock, you know, if a robot can just come in behind them and do the job much more cheaply, efficiently. The economy is more complicated than that, of course. As we heard at the end of the spoken meditation, a worker is also a consumer, And when a worker is replaced by a machine, that machine does not go out and consume. So if machines take all our jobs, who's going to have enough spare wages or wealth to buy stuff to power the economy? One response could be to restructure our economy in the spirit of never let a crisis go to waste. A crisis can be an opportunity to do things differently, but that different can cut both ways. It could result in just an elite few having enough wealth and the rest of us are outside the gates as the new barbarians. 
History tells us that similar crises have happened in the past. The mechanization of agriculture vaporized millions of jobs. Everyone used to essentially work in the farm, but with the agricultural revolution, unemployed farmhands came to the cities in search of factory work. Later, automation and globalization pushed workers out of that factory work, out of the manufacturing sector into the service sector, which is where we are now. What's more, those new jobs were often better. I realize better is a tricky word, but uh, those new jobs were often better, at least in the sense of upgraded skills, uh, increased wages. Again, describing jobs as better is an admittedly subjective evaluation, but we do need to have a serious reckoning of how hard should we fight to protect the jobs that robots might take away, which might be all the jobs. Would more leisure time be terrible is one related question. To quote another economist, this time the late John Kenneth Galbraith, he writes that leisure, it turns out, is a peculiar thing. Leisure is often seen as very good for the rich, pretty good for Harvard professors, and very bad for the poor. As to how much any given one of us should be concerned about the rise of the robots, there was an article in the New York Times earlier this month that summed up the current situation. Most Americans see artificial intelligence as a threat to jobs, just not theirs. So almost all of us consider, continue to regularly use early-stage artificial intelligence devices, so all those navigation apps and streaming services. Every time you make a choice that then lets you know, Netflix and Amazon know what you like and all of that, smartphone personal assistances, other smart home devices, those are all collecting data about our human behavior that will make the next generation of artificial intelligence possible. And the possibilities just keep growing, or should I say metastasize, exponentially from there. Indeed, Kevin Kelly, the executive director, uh, founding executive editor of Wired Magazine, has outlined what he calls the seven stages of denial related to robots taking your job. He says that stage one is, a robot or computer could not possibly do what I do. And then time passes, and you enter stage two. Okay, it can actually do a lot of those tasks now, but it can't do everything I do, and time passes, and you enter stage three. Okay, it can do everything I do, except it needs me when it breaks down, which is often, and time passes, stage four. Okay, it, offer, it operates flawlessly on routine stuff, but I still have to train it for new tasks, and then time passes, and you enter stage five. Okay, okay, you can just have that boring old job, because it's obvious that was not a job ever meant for humans. And time passes, and you enter stage six. Wow, now that robots are doing my old job, my due job is much more interesting and pays better. And time passes, and we enter stage seven. I'm so glad a robot can't do my job. <laughs> and you're back at stage one. And then the cycle begins again. One of the biggest misconceptions is that robots are only coming for blue-collar jobs, but it is not only so-called routine and repetitive jobs that are in the crosshairs of AI-empowered robots. Increasingly sophisticated algorithms mean that the key word for determining whether your job is under threat is whether it is predictable in any sort, even quite a complex way. 
Could another person learn to do your job by studying a detailed record of everything you've done in the past? Could someone become proficient by repeating the tasks you've already completed in the way that a student may take practice tests to prepare for an exam? To put myself in the spotlight, what ministerial algorithms might be in our future? You know, what might you be able to build by constantly surveilling what every single you know, religious professional worldwide is doing 24-7. You know, you could, you could learn a lot, I expect, and you could have someone who is, we'll talk to you for, you know, an unlimited amount of time for pastoral care. We'll talk to, you know, all of these things. Take every sermon that's ever been preached and, and the response to it, and what might we learn about how an AI-generated sermon might work. To give a more high-end example of what I'm talking about, radiologists, physicians who specialize in the interpretation of medical images, are among the highest-paid doctors with an average salary of around $340,000. Today, to become a radiologist requires approximately 13 years of training beyond high school, but each year computers are getting better at analyzing images. I can already see the appeal of having a computer who has in its memory bank Every interpretation every radiologist has done over X number of years give you a second opinion. But the day is likely coming further when we will only have robot radiologists as we work through those seven stages. The day is also likely coming soon when you will enter a fast food restaurant that is almost 100% automated. You will enter your order through an interface. Your food will be prepared precisely and freshly to your precise specifications by a robot. A few years ago, for instance, this is back in the early uh, 2010s, a company named Momentum Machines designed a machine capable of producing 360 hamburgers per hour. It toasts the buns. It slices fresh ingredients like onions, tomatoes, pickles, only after the order is placed. The company estimates their machine will pay for itself in less than a year because when you, as soon as you no longer have to pay humans and you only have to buy one of the robots, you don't, you, whereas humans want to get paid every pay period, right? There may well not even be a human manager physically present. Uh, rather, there'll be a centralized remote facility monitoring the individual restaurants. This is already happening in Japan. There's a whole chain of sushi restaurants where they're totally run by, there's just a remote manager, and the entire restaurant inside, you just order, and then the sushi comes around to you on the little conveyor belt, and then you put your plates on it, and it takes it back, and it cleans the dishes, and it, it, all, it all happens. Heck, it may be that you skip going to restaurants altogether and you just order through a smartphone app and a drone brings you whatever you've ordered, right? Uh, to give a few more examples, StatsBunky is a program being developed to automate sports reporting by transforming um, objective data about a particular game into a compelling narrative. More shocking are the advances machines are making in composing music that is emotionally moving to human beings based on in inputting data from the history of music and human beings' response to it. Dishearteningly to we mere mortals, these complex pieces of music take machines mere minutes to compose. Similar software is being developed to allow machines to generate new works of art. They're already doing this at rudimentary stages. So again, you enter a dat database of all the paintings that, for example, that humans have ever done, as well as label them with how humans re respond to those paintings, like sad or happy or inspiring or dark. The software can itself is increasingly able to discern regarding the painting that it just made how humans will respond to it. It can discern, you know, how... Uh, how am I achieving my objection, objectives?
So is this um, progress or, yeah, is this progress or are we programming our own obsolescence? Importantly, these questions are not new. You'll recall our opening example from Milton Friedman from the 1960s asking if we're going to hold ourselves back from using bulldozers, why not give workers spoons instead of shovels? Well, a decade earlier, Kurt Vonnegut's first novel, Piano Player, I mean, Player Piano, so punning on that pianos that play themselves, a Player Piano published in 1952 described an automated economy in which industrial machines managed by a tiny technical elite did virtually all the work while the vast majority of the populace faced a meaningless existence and a hopeless future. Vonnegut's science fiction seems increasingly less fiction and more possible science. Consider that YouTube was founded in 2015 by only three people. Less than two years later, the company was purchased by Google for $1.65 billion. At the time of its acquisition, YouTube employed a mere 65 employees, the majority of them highly skilled engineers. That works out to a valuation of over $25 million per employee. In April 2012, Facebook acquired photo-sharing startup Instagram for $1 billion. The company employed 13 people at the time. That's $77 billion per worker. Fast forward another two years to February 2014, and Facebook purchased the mobile messaging company WhatsApp for $19 billion. WhatsApp had a workforce of 55, giving an evaluation of $345 million per employee. Let's contrast that with the auto industry. At peak employment in 1979, General Motors alone had 840,000 workers but earned about, and earned about $11 billion that year. Uh, but that's 20% less than Google earned in 2012 while employing fewer than 38,000 people. 840,000, 38,000, and that, that is adjusted for inflation, and Google still earned 20% more than General Motors. How then can we help build a more hopeful future with peace, liberty, and justice for all, not merely for some or even a few? Along those lines, last week in reflecting on the life and work of James Baldwin, we talked about the importance of our UU second principle, the words and deeds of prophetic people who challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Among our list of contemporary prophets, I would also include the writer, the environmental activist, and cultural critic, Wendell Berry. One of the central questions he asked that has stuck with me ever since I first read it many years ago is, what are people for? What are people for? Our UU First Principle, echoing the UN Declaration of Human Rights, upholds the inherent worth and dignity of every person, period. Whether you work whether you don't work, you have inherent worth and dignity. That value has the potential to help us shape a very different sort of society than one in which humans are only valued based on the profit margins that our labor can generate for corporations. If you're interested in exploring this topic further, at least equally important to Martin Ford's 2015 book, The Rise of the Robots, is a bestseller of the New York Times named as one of the top 100 books of 2017. It's titled World Without Mind, and kind of relates to that story that Charles was telling the, the children earlier. World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech is by a guy named Franklin Four. Four has a particular interest in this topic. He was hired to be the editor of the New Republic 
in 2012 when that media organization was um, bought by someone named Chris Hughes. Some of you will know that name as the Harvard roommate of Facebook co-founder Mark Zuckerberg. And when that happened, this purchase was hailed as this prime example of how these new super-rich tech billionaires could help save the humanities, help save media, you know, traditional media and things like that. But a little more than two years later, Hughes fired four because the profit margins were too slow to rise. Recent headlines are also siren calls for the ways things can go really badly in our new world of 21st century technology. Witness the ways that Russian hackers help manipulate the American public to help elect our first reality TV star as president of the United States. Or consider just the first lines of an article from this week, past week's New York Times. Cambridge Analytica. The political data firm with ties to President Trump's 2016 presidential campaign suspended its chief executive on Tuesday amid the furor over access it gained to private information on more than 50 million Facebook users. Any of you that have ever done anything with Facebook ads, they can be incredibly micro-targeted. You can just be super specific in who sees that ad. Well, you can flip that and do the same thing for using all that data, all the things Facebook knows about us, to micro-target for um, political purposes. Reflecting on the growing power and influence of the big four tech companies, sometimes abbreviated GAFA, G-A-F-A, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, uh, Four writes, we have deluded ourselves into caring more deeply about convenience and efficiency than about the things that last. Compared to the sustained nourishment of the contemplative life or a deep commitment to text, many of the promiscuous pleasures of the web are vanishing. They're fleeting. The contemplative life, though, remains freely available to us through our choices, what we read and buy, how we commit to leisure and self-improvement, the passing over of empty temptation, the preservation of quiet, undisturbed spaces, and intentional striving to be masters of our mastery. But the technology corporations are actively trying to exploit our human weaknesses. They know that every time you get a like on Facebook, it's a, it gives you a dopamine hit, right? It's, it's addictive. They know that, and they're using all that data to addict us further, to exploit our human weaknesses to keep us enthralled, using their products, giving us increasing amounts of data about ourselves to them, which then augments their quarterly profits, as in turn they use our, intention, our attention and our data to sell um, advertising dollars. What we need is a triple bottom line that accounts for people, planet, and profit. Profit's still in there. Profit motive is real, but it has to be balanced if we're going to have a uh, less of a dystopic future. It has, profit has to be balanced against the needs of humanity, the needs for uh, labor rights, the needs for our um, environment to have a sustainable um, ecosystem on this planet. And we need to be honest that the incentives, the short-term profits, they're just too massively great to expect corporations to do the right thing on their own. To be even more direct, as best I can tell, there's a three-word answer that is the best way of responding to the rise of the robots. That is universal basic income. Some of you recall I said a lot more about what that would mean in my Labor Day sermon this past year, titled Beyond $15, The Sturdy Floor of a Universal Basic Income. And I think that metaphor of a sturdy floor is really essential. It's not about putting a limit on how much any one individual can make, but it's about saying we're going to tie how much any 
individual can make to at least having a sturdy floor for everybody. And once there's a sturdy floor for everyone, other people can then compete and have, and have more. As to how to pay for it, I mean, I don't know what else to say than tax the rich, that's where the money is. I mean, like, we've got to redistribute it, I mean, to, to have a sturdy floor for everyone. Uh, and then we can have, we don't, it doesn't mean everyone's equal, it just means we need a sturdy floor so that everyone has a dignified life. And I was fascinated to read this line near the end of Martin Ford's Rise of the Robots. He wrote, some form of guaranteed income is probably the best overall solution to um, the rise of automation technology. For now, regarding the choices before us as a species, I'll leave you with these words from Wendell Berry's book, What Are People For? He writes, I knew a man. I knew a man who in the age of chainsaws went right on cutting his wood with a handsaw and an axe. He was a healthier and a saner man than I am, and I shall let his memory trouble my thoughts. And I do want to thank uh, Stephen as well that not all of the sermon topics are created equal. He had a pretty difficult one in finding music for artificial intelligence. So thank you for uh, picking out Thus Fake Zarathustra and a few other quite appropriate songs. And and he didn't ask me to do this, but he does have a table in the back. He's recorded a CD. So if you're interested in that, it's uh, they are for sale in the atrium. Uh, just one or two more quick things. Um, when I, I, I should, if, if this isn't clear, those of you who know me, I mean, I preach from an iPad. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not a Luddite, right? I'm, I don't want to be, like, overly um, anti-come off as overly anti-technology. It's more just I can these things can cut more toward utopia or more toward dystopia. And I feel about it, actually, having just gone to the March on Washington, that I feel about it actually similarly to how I feel about weapons, that you know, we have that phrase, well-regulated, well-regulated militia in the Second Amendment. And to me, as far as I see that, you know, well, well-regulated militia is isn't like your neighborhood gets together and we're going to call that a militia, right? No, a well-regulated militia is the National Guard. You know, if you want access to an AR-15, enlist in the National Guard. It seems very clear to me. And very similarly, we need well-regulated big tech that because there's otherwise we're just going to get exploitation of people and um, planet for profit alone. And so to me, it's very similar that uh, Kevin Kelly with Wired Magazine that I mentioned earlier and I think he's right about this, says that if we could fast forward 20 years and look back on 2018, people would, you'll get people saying kind of what we say looking back, like, wow, I wish I could have been alive in 2018. It was just this open frontier of technology related to artificial intelligence, because I really think we are on that, on that cusp of thing, you know, basically mix in AI to anything in your life, and it's, so that's all coming. And and then it will depend on whether, you know, there are people like Elon Musk and others that argue that, oh, everyone having these smartphones uh, in their hands means you have access like 24-7, you know, sort of democratization of access to all the world's wisdom. But so that can both empower really powerful entrepreneurship or it can mean that we're all playing angry birds and amusing ourselves to death while standing in the unemployment line. So... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it can really cut both ways, and, and it's up to us to advocate for 
you know, represented leaders who will, who will regulate this, uh, this new economy and help build an economy that is, works for all, not just for some. And so to continue to do your part, reflect in the coming days and weeks on what are your spheres of influence. How can you continue your journey in love? How can you do justice and make peace? How can you care for one another and care for this one earth? And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. And as you see what uh, Stephen has selected for the postlude, you'll see that invitation as you reflect on what all we've been talking about, an invitation for we humans, whatever happens, we get to try to say... I'll be back, right? So we'll see.